Again, if you can find your seats and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. If you would read along with me again, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, our, our Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you're with us this morning, Lord, that as we examine this commandment once again, Lord, as we look at these two words that you have commanded, don't murder. God, that you would show us the meaning, the, the, the true meaning of what you meant when you have commanded this commandment, Lord. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not have a saving relationship with you, if they, if they don't know where they stand with you this morning, Lord, that they would hear this sermon, that they would understand that they truly are sinners, that they would understand their need for grace, and that they would understand that you're a gracious God. God, I pray for those that do have a relationship with you this morning, Lord, that you would challenge us to examine our hearts to see there's murder within to see Lord if if there's a relationship that we need to, to work on to seek forgiveness from to, to try to bring reconciliation Lord God I, I pray these things I pray that you're with us this morning in your son's name Amen. well two weeks ago we started a two-part sermon series on the sixth commandment today we're gonna finish that sermon series and the first part we started, and I introduced the Sixth Commandment by looking at human history, and we did that because human history really teaches us a lot about human nature. And we saw that in the 20th century alone, you can blame 175 million deaths 
the four different dictators, the four different people, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. In fact, just saying those names for a lot of us, hearing those names together just brings almost a chill. We saw that even in the United States, our, our streets are full of murder. Gang violence, drug violence, domestic violence, mass shooting, which seems to happen almost every other month now in our country. Young men, murderous young men, trying to outdo each other. And it's not just the streets. We saw two weeks ago that over 60 million babies murdered in the womb since 1973. The 20th century has often been called the bloodiest century man has ever witnessed. We have war, genocide, abortion, terrorism. The bloodiest century ever. Now, if you ask most people if murder is wrong, most throughout human history, most would have would say yes. In fact, at face value, as you go through the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment seems to be the least controversial commandment out of them all. But I argued two weeks ago that if the wrongness of murder is so common sense, if the wrongness of murder is so presupposed or, or just assumed, then why has there been millions and millions and millions murdered in the 20th century alone? The truth is that man has murder within his heart. What Luke preached last week and did an excellent job, what he preached last week was exactly right. Romans 3.10 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Today we're going to continue the sermon series on the Sixth Commandment. And we're going to be looking at the greatest interpretation. The greatest explanation of the Sixth Commandment that you can find, the, the phrase, you shall not murder, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and it's found in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 21. So if you would turn there. As you're turning there, let me just give you the context of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the one preaching here. This is a sermon. And Jesus is going to, in this sermon, address the Sixth Commandment. He, in fact, is going to interpret and explain the Sixth Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13, what we just read in Hebrew, it's only two words, don't murder. In English, at least the ESV, it says this, you shall not murder. Jesus is going to explain what this means. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. This is God himself. Right? Jesus, the the Son of God, right? God the Son. This is God himself explaining to us what he meant at Mount Sinai when he said, you shall not murder. This is the correct interpretation, 
the explanation of what this commandment means. Now, I don't have any points this morning. Uh, My goal really is just to walk through Jesus' teaching and kind of looking at verse by verse and explaining what what he is saying. So if you would, start with me in verse 21. This is, again, Jesus preaching. It's right in the middle of his sermon, and he says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Again, that's Exodus 20, verse 13, word for word. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, verse 21 in the sermon Jesus is giving is really not controversial at all. And as I've said a number of times now, most civilizations, most people throughout the history of, uh, of mankind would agree with the statement, you shall not murder. And whoever commits murder, that word's extremely important here, not just killing, but murder. Murder defined as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Whoever commits murder is liable to judgment. Again, this is very biblical and maybe controversial in our day and age what that judgment should be, but, but in the, the audience that Jesus is preaching to, it's not controversial at all. The hearers would have all agreed to this statement, verse 21. They would have all agreed until we get to verse 22, which Jesus says, but I say to you. Now let me just stop there because I want you to think about how bold this statement is. But I say to you, let me just read it all together. Again, listen to verse 21. It says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, here Jesus boldly is prioritizing his teaching over what has been taught for ages, for centuries. He's saying you have been taught You've been taught from old, from the ancients, some translations have. You have been taught that the sixth commandment means this, but I say to you. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus isn't criticizing what the word says. He's not saying that the Bible says this, but I say to you. He's clarifying what the word says. What he's criticizing is man's interpretation throughout the ages of the sixth commandment. And it's important to understand that the interpretation is not necessarily wrong. The teaching that murder is wrong, you shall not murder, that's not wrong. In fact, that's just word for word, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And the second part of it, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, well, that's Genesis 9, 6, right? The death penalty, that's the judgment for murder. That's a correct interpretation of the sixth commandment. But here's the problem. It's not just that it's wrong. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's incomplete. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't get to the heart. And as we've seen in the Ten Commandments, and I did an overview of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments aren't just about external actions. They're about spiritual, internal thoughts. It's about the heart. So let's look at what Jesus says and how he interprets the Sixth Commandment. Look at verse 21. He says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that... Jesus is going to give three statements to bring clarity to the Sixth Commandment. Here are the three statements. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In these three statements, Jesus tells us exactly what God meant when he said those two words at Mount Sinai, don't murder, you shall not murder. So I think it's important to understand the Sixth Commandment that we take some time and look at these three statements and what exactly Jesus is teaching us. So the first statement, again, is this. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, the Greek word for angry, anger here is orgaizo. Um, it, it just means to be angry, to, to make angry, to irritate, to be furious. In its context, it's an it's a unrighteous anger towards a brother. It's a type of anger that, that boils or festers or simmers within the heart, within the soul. It's a type of anger that grows over time if not dealt with. It's an unrighteous type of anger that, that can actually lead to physical murder. In fact, unrighteous anger is at the root of murder. Calvin called this type of anger within the heart, murder of the heart. And I, I want to show you that it's not that Jesus is adding to Scripture. This is very clear in the Old Testament. Using Scripture to interpret Scripture, if you just had the Old Testament, you would come to this conclusion. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We'll be right back in Matthew, but I want to look at Genesis chapter 4 real quick. This is the fourth chapter of Scripture. Most of us are familiar with this. If you're not, the first two chapters have to do with creation. The second chapter specifically mostly deals with the creation of man. The third chapter has to do with the fall, where man sins. Man rebels against God. Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they were not to eat. The fourth chapter starts this way. Verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. So these are the two sons of Adam and Eve. A lot of people guess that they may have been twins. Let's think about that for a second. Two twin brothers. Maybe they're not. They're definitely brothers. It says this, Now Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought uh, of the firstborn of his flock and all their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, there's some debate why God had regard for Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's offering. Why wasn't God happy with Cain's offering? It's definitely because Cain was disobedient somehow. We don't know exactly because that's not the point of this. The point is Cain's response. That's where this is going. So look at verse 5 again. It says this, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. In other words, Cain had anger within his heart. Anger probably at God, but definitely at his brother. So look at what God does. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, in other words, if you're obedient, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. In other words, God understood where anger leads. He, he can read man's heart. He knows that Cain's angry within his soul, and he warns Cain because he knows where anger leads. Again, anger and hatred of a brother is murder within the heart. And the Bible just makes this really clear. In fact, stay in Genesis 4, but James 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I just want to stop there. That's a very important question to think about that. James is about to answer this question, by the way, but, but think about it. James is going to give us the answer to what causes quarrels and what causes fights among us. I mean, that includes fights within the family, quarrels with, with siblings, with, with uh, spouses. That includes quarrels within the church. That includes quarrels outside of the church and the violence we see that comes from fighting. That includes wars that happen because there's quarrels that happen between nations and countries and, and the death tolls that have happened because of fights and quarrels. James is going to give us the answer. Look what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, within your heart. Now, I want to stop here because we use this two verses all the time for counseling. And there's something that James does that I think is extremely important. He does not let you blame the other person. Even if that person sinned against you, even if that person did something horrible against you, he does not let you blame that other person. Look what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Cain desired God's approval, and he sought after it in a sinful way. He desired God's approval. Therefore, he murdered his brother within his heart because he didn't get what he desired. He was unrighteously angry at his brother. And God knew that there was unrighteous anger within his heart, and he knew where it leads. So God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, look what happens in verse 8. It says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain physically murdered his brother, meaning within one chapter after the fall, Genesis 3, within one chapter, the very first generation after Adam and Eve, the very first two boys born, was murdered. But I want to be clear. This murder happened well before Cain physically took the life of Abel. It started within Cain's heart. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5. Again, I just want to remind you as you're turning there, there's three statements that Jesus gives explaining the, the real meaning to the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 30. The first statement, again, begins in verse 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The, the next two statements at the end of verse 22, I believe, are parallel statements, meaning anger is at the root of murder, and there's something else that's at the root of murder, too. And there's two parallel statements that tell us what that is. Jesus says this, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, I believe these are parallel statements. The first part, the first parallel statement says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, this isn't a word-for-word translation in the ESV. The word-for-word translation would be something like this. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council. Raka was a common Aramaic phrase in Jesus' day. We don't know exactly what it means, and there's all types of debate, and that's why the ESV just translates it the way it does. It's some kind of insult, so they're kind of getting the paraphrase across since we don't know what that word means exactly. It probably means something like idiot. Calling someone an idiot. It's a word of disdain for sure. Again, we don't know exactly what it means. I think as I've studied this, the the closest equivalent we have in modern society, at least in Western American society, is like flipping someone off. Again, whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council. Now, the council here is referring to the Sanhedrin. This was the highest Jewish court. This court tried the most serious of offenses. And it pronounced the severest penalties, including the death penalty, which is clearly implied here. Do you see how radical this teaching is then? I want you to feel the weight of this. Jesus says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be in, listen to this, liable to the hell of fire. Now the word fool in Greek is moros. It's the root, it's a, the word we get moron from, it sounds like it, moros. It's like the word dumb or stupid, moron. I think we get the idea of that, but it, it has a moral connotation to it. That doesn't come across in the English word moron. It has a moral connotation to it. It doesn't mean just someone's dumb or a moron. It means something more than that. It means they're full, foolish, or, or unwise. That's why it translates, you fool. That's a good translation. It means they're, they're foolish or unwise. In other words, they're not just dumb, but they're also morally corrupt. That's the accusation. Again, these are parallel statements. I believe they're meant to go together. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, when you put these two statements together, it it really implies that you think a brother is worthless. Just think about it. You think he's a fool. You think he's stupid, an idiot. He's worthless. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Because I'm guessing as we come to this teaching, I think most people focus on that first statement, the 
anger, if you're angry at a brother. And I think most people understand that anger leads to murder because we've seen it. You've probably seen someone that was so angry if they weren't being held back by their own conscience or the law. Or maybe you've even seen someone being physically held back. If they weren't held back, they were so angry they would have murdered. We understand this. We see it in domestic violence that leads to murder, road rage that leads to murder, gang shootings, fights that lead to murder. Nearly always, murder is at the, or, or anger is at the root of murder. But, think about this. Judging a person to be worthless is not just at the root of murder. Judging a person to be worthless is at the root of genocide. People, groups of people, or nations, have committed genocide mass killings. In fact, mass killings for, for what has happened in the 20th century, it's not a good enough word. That's why we've created a word. We had to create words to explain what has happened in the, the last hundred years. If people have committed genocide and ethnic cleansing and, and holocaust and political uprising and abortion in starvation, starving the marginalized and the poor, because in their hearts, they have judged others as worthless. I could give you all types of examples. I mean, they're just everywhere. But let me give you three. Three that always hit home as Western Americans. The first one's Nazi Germany. They considered the Jew worthless. In fact, they had a phrase that was very popular that they came up with. They said a Jew is a life unworthy of life. Worthless. How about early American slavery? African American. His only worth was being a slave. Less than a few full human. Considered them worthless. But we can't escape this. How about a modern modern America? The unborn. Considered worthless. I mean, you've heard the rhetoric. Just a clump of tissue. A fetus. Just Latin for a baby, by the way. <laughs> an embryo. Mindless. You even hear people on the other side of this debate call the unborn a parasite. Worthless. Again, anger leads to murder. It's the root of murder. It's the heart behind murder. But judging a people as worthless is the heart behind genocide. Therefore, I... I want you to see this. You know, sometimes we read Jesus' teachings, and it's so simple in one in one vein, but it's so profound. Jesus gets right to the heart of murder. 
You want to know why there's been so many murders in the 20th century? Well, let me read why. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that, that everyone who has anger with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. With those three statements expanding on the sixth commandment, Jesus gets right to the heart of murder, right to the heart of genocide. And guess what? It's in us all. It's in us all. With these three statements... Jesus exposes our hearts and shows us that we all have murder in our hearts. And you need to understand how significant this teaching is. Jesus is saying that a person is a murderer, guilty of murder, liable to judgment, liable to the council, which is the death penalty, liable to the hell of fire if they have ever been angry with a brother, hateful towards a brother, if they have insulted a brother or have called him a fool. You know, this teaching would have been absolutely shocking. For some of you listening right now, you might be shocked, right? I mean, if there was any commandment that we're sure we didn't break, it's a six. In fact, I don't know how many times you go out in the street and ask someone, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And they'll say, yeah. And you ask, why? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anyone. Not according to Jesus' standard. In fact, Jesus was talking to Pharisees, a bunch of people that were, were self-righteous, that, that thought they were keeping the standard. Can you imagine how shocking this teaching would have been? You know, this is such a profound teaching that I just have a vivid memory of this. In, in 2006, President Barack Obama, then Senator Obama, but in a speech, and I remember this speech, he was talking about the Bible, and he's talking about Scripture, and he, he called Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he called his teaching radical. And he said this because in one sense, he understood, he understood what Jesus was saying. He understood that by Jesus' standard, we are all guilty of murder. We all deserve the, the death penalty. We have all murder within our hearts. Now, I don't say this often, but Obama was right. He was right. He was right by calling Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount radical. Let me just ask this. You don't have to raise your hand. You can. I will. How many of you have been angry, unrighteously angry with a brother? You know what Jesus says? You're a murderer. Liable to judgment. How many of you have insulted a brother, maybe a family member, maybe your own husband or wife? 
called them stupid, dumb, mindless, or even worse. Maybe you did this to their face or behind their back, or maybe you just did it in your heart. Jesus says, liable to the council. How many of you have simply called your brother a fool or something equivalent? Jesus says, you are liable to the hell of fire. That's the standard. We need to understand that that's the standard. When we share the gospel, that's the standard. It's not, have you ever physically murdered someone? Remember, this is God interpreting what he meant at Mount Sinai when he said, don't murder. The standard is this. Have you ever been angry with someone? Have you, have you ever insulted someone? That's the standard. And I want to be clear, by this standard, we're all doomed. We're all murderers. By this standard, Romans 3 is exactly right. None is righteous. No, not one. By this standard, we are all, by nature, children of wrath. That means children destined for God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, 3. Again, destined for wrath. We are destined to the hell of fire. That's Jesus' words. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, you should listen to his teaching. Listen, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals the standard. And the standard is perfection. Jesus taught that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, verse 20. I mean, that's a couple verses away. That you must be perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, what does perfect mean? He says this, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. But here's the problem. We're not. No one is. No one is perfect. In fact, Romans three twenty three says, All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we fall short of the standard. If you're trying to get to heaven, if you're trying to have a relationship with God by being good, you fall short. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to be honest with you. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what we're owed for sin. That we are all sinners and we deserve death. And this is talking about the second death. This is talking about what Jesus calls liable, uh, liable to the hell of fire. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why it's called good news. Most people think they are good, that God will accept them because they, they are a pretty good person. I've never murdered anyone. But here's the bad news. The standard's not pretty good. The standard is perfection. And it's not an external perfection. 
you may be able to fool yourself, as the Pharisees and scribes did, that they were externally perfect. A lot of them probably thought they were externally perfect. Jesus takes it to, to the place where no one, no one can fool themselves to say that they're per- perfect, that they're a good person. He takes it to the, the inward self, what goes on in our heart and minds. And by Jesus' interpretation of the Sixth Commandment, we're all murderers. We're all guilty of murder, liable to the judgment, liable to the council, liable to the hell of fire. That's the bad news, but here is the good news. The good news is actually very simple. The good news is this. God is merciful. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. And by his love, he has made a way for us to be saved. This is why I love John 3.16 so much. We see it everywhere, but the meaning is so profound. God so loved the world. This is God the Father. This is God of the Old Testament. This is God at Mount Sinai. so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die in other words. That's the wages of sin. But have eternal life. In other words, because of God's mercy and love, he sent his son. He gave his son who came and lived a perfect life. Never sinned once. Externally or internally. He never murdered within his heart. When he was angry, it was a righteous anger. He was never unrighteously angry. He never considered anyone to be worthless. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. In fact, when the Roman guards were torturing him, nailing him to the cross, what did he do? He didn't respond in anger. He didn't respond with threats. He didn't even call them fools, which they were fools, and he would have been justified in using it there. What did he do? He prayed for them. Just think about that for a second. As they were murdering him, physically murdering him, he prayed for them. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was perfect. He not only set the standard... Kept it. He lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross for your sins. So let me end this morning by saying if you're not a Christian, I want to talk to you specifically. I don't know who's a Christian, who's not. You know what is going on in your heart and your relationship with the Lord. If you're not a Christian, or if you just don't know where you stand with the Lord, you cannot be saved by being good. You have to be perfect. Bible's clear, no one is perfect except Jesus. 
cannot be saved by being good. No one is good. No, not one. This passage just proves it. It's like a mirror, looking in the mirror and seeing our own heart that we are all murderers. Salvation only comes by God's grace, by his grace alone, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. This is John three sixteen again, by God so loved the world that he gave, that's grace, he gave. He gave his only son, that's God's grace, that whoever believes in him, that's faith, believes in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. So this is what I'd like you to do. We're going to take communion in a second here. In fact, men, if you can get ready in the back to serve communion. If after hearing Jesus' teaching this morning, you feel guilt, and let me just stop there. Not just a feeling of guilt, but you know you have been angry in your heart or, or insulted or called a, a loved one or, or someone that's not even a loved one, a fool. And you have true guiltiness on your shoulders. And you feel that this morning. And you're not sure where you stand before the Lord because you are a sinner. I would ask you not to take communion this morning. In fact, this is what I'd like you to do right now. Take this time to pray to God who is gracious and merciful. Pray to him. Admit that you have sin within your heart, that you're not perfect. Ask for forgiveness. Trust in his son who lived a perfect life, completely sinless, and who died on the cross for your sins. He satisfied God's wrath for you. Trust in Jesus. It's only by grace, through trust in Jesus, through faith, that you can be saved. And from here on out, just don't listen to me. Examine your heart and see where you are with the Lord and pray to him. Cry out. He can hear your thoughts. Now, if you are a Christian, I have something I want to tell you. If you are a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus. You know you have been saved. You know you're in right standing with the Lord, not because of your works, but because of what Christ has done for you. I have something else I want to point out from Jesus' teaching. I want you to look at Matthew 5, verse 23. Because Jesus doesn't just stop here. He continues. He says this in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're, you're coming to the altar at the temple, and you have a gift, a sacrifice, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. As you come to this sacrifice to worship God, it hits you that your brother has something against you, that you're not in right relationship with a brother. Listen to what Jesus commands. Verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, listen, it is such a priority to seek reconciliation with a brother that Jesus says, leave your gift there. Leave the altar, leave the gift there, and just go. Now, <laughs> find your brother, seek reconciliation. In other words, stop worshiping and go find your brother. Because how can you celebrate reconciliation with God when you haven't done everything on your end to be reconciled with the brother? was made in the image of God. Now I want to be clear. 
if you've done everything in your part and your brother still won't reconcile with you, maybe he won't talk with you, and you've just tried and tried and did everything you can do, and you've done everything you can do, you can do. But I want you to hear this, and I want to encourage you to do this. If you have aught with a, a brother, if you are angry in your heart right now towards a brother, if you're in conflict with a brother, even if, if you don't have anger, but you know a brother has something against you and you haven't done everything you can to reconcile it, I would encourage you to do this. Go. Now, go. Find them. Seek reconciliation. If it's your spouse, maybe you're sitting here right now and you're angry at your spouse and you're putting on an act like everything is okay, but, but it's not okay. Seek reconciliation. Don't take communion. Seek re- reconciliation first with your spouse. Or if you have anger or contempt in your heart toward a son or daughter or toward a father or mother or a son-in-law or daughter-in-law or a brother or a sister or another church member or, or just a neighbor. Go right now and be reconciled. Don't take communion. There's warnings in 1 Corinthians about taking communion in an unworthy manner. If you look at the context of 1 Corinthians, it's because the church was a mess. There's all types of disunity, anger, bitterness towards each other. And there's a warning, don't take communion. You need to forgive them, forgive them now. You need to ask for forgiveness, ask. Jesus tells us, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. celebrate the grace that we have at communion. But if you have unrepented sin in your heart, you need to repent from that sin and trust that that sin is forgiven. And part of repentance is seeking out reconciliation if you need to. So let's have a moment of silence. I'm going to call the men forward and I want all of us to examine our hearts and see where we are. Men, you can come forward. Lord, on the night when he had given thanks, the Lord, on the night when he had was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, one of the amazing things about the law, as we're walking through the law, is that it exposes just how sinful we truly are. And what's good about that us to grace. It shows us how sweet grace truly is. You know what? That's what we're celebrating right now, and I want to say it's a celebration because we have been forgiven for all the murderous thoughts and ugliness in our hearts. We are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us, so this is a celebration. He gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in 